Hello and welcome to With Reason from New Humanist magazine and the Rationalist Association with me, Alice Block. And me, Samira Shackle. This is the podcast where you can find radical, exciting and sometimes surprising research and ideas from thinkers who deserve to be heard but who aren't exempt from being challenged either. Yeah, With Reason is the place where you'll find intelligent thinking in turbulent times and critical thought about belief and non-belief and the very nature of rational debate. In this series, we're meeting writers and academics whose work prompts questions like how should we listen to people whose worldview we disagree with? What risk is there in sticking to narrow ideas of knowledge? And how are our relationships with our work and with each other being changed by technology? Our guests this series include people like Kate Devlin, an expert in social and cultural intelligence, talking about the future of intimacy and tech. And next week, we'll hear from Mariela Pfannebecker on the subject of work and desire in late capitalism. But right now, we're meeting a feminist author and journalist who's challenging mainstream notions of knowledge. Today, we're talking to Minna Salami. She is the woman behind the Ms. Afropolitan blog, a really successful blog that connects feminism with reflections on contemporary culture from an Africa-centred perspective. And she is also the author of Sensuous Knowledge, a black feminist approach for everyone. In that book, she challenges the types of knowing that we've really taken for granted for way too long. And she offers a more inclusive, more holistic way of thinking about knowledge. Um, I would say it's a book that speaks pretty strongly to questions of reason and unreason today. And in particular, Minna exposes what she calls Europatriarchal knowledge. So we started by asking her exactly what that means. The point of Europatriarchal knowledge is not so much that it is marked by Eurocentricity and by male dominance, but rather that it is it is a fragmented and polarizing, divisive worldview. Um, and so it started in during the age of discovery when European monarchs sent off explorers into parts of the world that were previously thought of as as the unknown. And prior to that, so in medieval times, even in Europe, knowledge had been seen as something to preserve, so something that everybody had an investment in. And then during this period of discovery, knowledge became something to acquire instead of something to preserve. And you had Francis Bacon, who was really influential in shaping this new perception of knowledge. And so he coined this adage, knowledge is power, which today is used uh, more positively, I would argue, than than what he did. So what Bacon meant in his tractate, Novum Organum, which he wrote in 1620, by knowledge is power, was that the more knowledge we could acquire about nature and about all of these parts of the world that previously were thought of as unknown, the more power we would have. And and so literally, it was sort of classifying nature as something to exploit, dominate and control. And then included in this perception of nature over time were women, you know, indigenous peoples. So basically, everything and everyone that wasn't the Eurocentric elite or elite men who were shaping this this worldview. So Minna, I guess when you talk about Europatriarchal knowledge, we're talking about knowledge as something that can be acquired, that can be used um, to dominate other people, uh, that kind of thing, that can be measured, that leads to kind of ranking, calculation, all of that. Um, you suggest that Europatriarchal knowledge shapes things like politics and education 
to this day and that its dominance means that we fail to address various social problems as well as we otherwise might be able to. I think you say the poorest in society often pay for this. Can you, can you give any examples of the damage done today by that kind of thinking? Yes. So Europatriarchal knowledge is um, a worldview that sees fragmentation, polarisation and division at, at the heart of it. We see the same pattern, the same kind of system of, of fragmentation in all parts of society, in all institutions. And in order to uphold the fragmentative and divisive thought, we kind of have to use a, a mechanistic methods because anything that is holistic, anything that speaks to the unity that ultimately exists between human beings of different races and genders or between the non-human natural world and human beings will um, destroy this system of thought. And so we find this replicated um, from a very early age in our educational systems where children are taught to rank each other, to be competitive, to think of what they are learning as as fragmented systems. So we think, you know, there's no connection between the arts and the sciences, for example, and that humans and, and nature are divided. And um, in contemporary society, because we are educated in this way, we continue to replicate this in our, in our forms of thinking. Um, and so when you look at the types of institutions that, that govern the lives of the, the most disenfranchised, there is this, this neglect of wholeness. We're basically divide between what I would label the aesthetic and the mystical. So things like um, embodiment and the arts and myth and lived experience, basically. Um, and then on the other hand, we have what I would label the, the political and the demystifying. So science, um, critical analysis, reasoning, rational thinking. And we are educated to believe that we're not allowed even to bring these two together. And whatever kind of, of oppressive structure or system we are looking at, you tend to find this at the very heart of the matter. And when you talk about the Europatriarchal view, you're not seeking to simply overthrow or battle with it, are you? It's something more complex. Exactly. So first of all, when I speak about Europatriarchal knowledge, I'm not speaking about white men per se. So just because somebody is a white male does not mean that they automatically perpetuate Europatriarchal knowledge. You know, Europatriarchal knowledge goes back centuries and there have always been people even within this this system this worldview who have opposed it many of whom have been white people or male people or white male people and the other reason that I'm not seeking to sort of overthrow Europatriarchal knowledge as my main focus is because whatever you resist whatever you're protesting against is what you center at the end of the day. So my, my interest in engaging with Europatriarchal knowledge um, is to critique it, for one, but more importantly, it is to, is to expose it because once people see the flaws in something, it has less power over them. 
And and you talk about the holes, the gaps in Europatriarchal knowledge. One thing that you do to illustrate the idea of a more nuanced approach to knowledge and how that could be helpful is you tell the story of the Yoruba city of Ife in southwestern Nigeria. Could you just tell that story for us briefly and, and what its message is for you? Ife is the city that lies at the cradle of Yoruba civilization. Yoruba civilization, for those who don't know, is a, you know, it consists of, of millions of people around the world who are of Yoruba descendants. So it's not like a small village or tribe or anything like that. So Ife is a major city. Um, and it's also the, the city from which the Yoruba philosophy and mythology emanates. And so when it comes to knowledge, the ancient myths um, have this story that the gods gave people something called Ogbon. And Ogbon could be translated to knowledge, but more precisely, it is the ancient Greek term phronesis, which means practical wisdom. And when, when the gods gave the people of Ife Ogbon, they understood that it had to speak to the hearts and the minds of the people of Ife. And so they split Ogbon into what they called Ogbon Ori, which basically means, or literally translated means, knowledge of the head, and Ogbon Inu, which literally translated is knowledge of the gut. So you could say these are respectively uh, intellectual and emotional intelligence. Um, and according to the Yoruba epos, to only have one type of Ogbon, one type of knowledge, was to be only partly wise. The reason that I share this, this ancient myth is to, is to argue that what patriarchal knowledge, this dominant system that we now have, does is to only focus on Ogbon Ori knowledge of the head, so to speak. And furthermore, it does so in ways that um, creates this hierarchy and ranking and, and says that Ogbon or knowledge of the head is better than knowledge of the gut, whereas the two are parts, two parts of the same coin. Is this something that needs to be recognised for the benefit of everyone? Uh, so you write about the harm that's done by Europatriarchal knowledge, not just to women, but also to men? Absolutely. It is something that needs to be recognised by everyone, because ultimately we're all made up of the same kinds of interiorities. Um, as human beings, we're all driven by our fears and our desires, and you know, society is a relational, a, a relational phenomena. You could actually say that the male gender, in some specific ways, uh, suffers even more from Europatriarchal knowledge, being a, a worldview that does this fragmenting, dividing thing. Um, and because of its association with male dominance, it means that men are even more prone to internalize separative way of looking at things. Um, and so men are especially socialized to repress and neglect the emotional and the embodied side of life and of knowledge production. Um, and this kind of repression leads to violence, um, whether it's a kind of emotional violence or violence toward oneself in terms of denying and suppressing your desires, or violence toward others, which is the worst outcome, which we see manifest in our societies um, in so many different ways. 
So Minna, you put forward this term sensuous knowledge, I guess, offering a more holistic idea of what knowledge could be that's not so one dimensional as Europatriarchal knowledge is. Tell me a bit about that and how, how that came about. So sensuous knowledge is an approach to knowledge in which I synthesize rational thinking with emotional intelligence. And the way that I figure one can do that, because of course it's not as straightforward as it sounds when you when you put it that way, it is by combining what I label the mystical and the aesthetic. Um, so things like art, personal narrative and spirituality and poetry also, you could add to that, with things that are deemed to be strictly political. So, you know, your activism, your analyses, uh, theory and so on. So bringing this kind of interweaving approach. And the reason that I do that is so that whatever kind of whatever liberation um, and empowerment that knowledge can provide us is coming from a genuinely holistic place, um, which means that it will be more lasting than anything, which is a kind of cosmetic um, effort and a, an Apache effort toward liberation and empowerment. And so just to clarify, I guess, sensuous knowledge, we're talking about a form of knowledge which also incorporates kind of the bodily, the sensuous, not the sensual. And ideas beyond the kind of intellectual and cerebral alone, I suppose. Give me an example of this. So what would happen if we applied sensuous knowledge to, say, economic exchanges? I think you talk about ideas of reciprocity, exchange, eroticism even, but not as we know it in the in the sexual sense. As you said, the word uh, sensuous is not quite the same as the word sensual. So sensual obviously has to do with the senses and furthermore, it has to do with uh, the bodily pleasures that we can get from our senses. Um, whereas the word sensuous, it means an integration of of the mind, body and soul. Um, but all that said, I'm not denying the bodily pleasures or any kind of erotic side to sensuousness, because since the word sensuous is an integration of of, of the whole, of, of the body, as well as the mind, as well as the spirit, it also includes the erotic, by which I mean uh, the word erotic as, as connected to eros, um, which in ancient Greek means love, which speaks to this kind of relational uh, element of humanity. I'm quite fascinated in my book in looking at what it would mean and what it does to uh, our institutions and our and our uh, conceptualizations when we eroticize them so for as you as you asked like if we if we were to look at the economy more more erotically more sensuously more relationally what would it look like and and i think it would be shaped more by values like reciprocity and connectedness whereas at the moment uh, our economies are obviously very much shaped by division and, and competition, which creates more suffering. In championing sensuous knowledge, you 
uphold the value of that which we might typically label as feminine. So kind of the instinctive, the bodily associations with nature, rivers, all of these kind of things. How do you tread the line between doing that whilst also being careful at the same time to not essentialize womanhood, to say there is there are qualities that are essentially female and feminine? And that I, th- I think, for example, you do quote Simone de Beauvoir on a person not being born a woman, but becoming one, yet at the same time, you uphold feminine values. Tell me about that, striking that balance. Yes. Um, so because we have lived in, in, a, in, in, in systems and because we've received educations that devalue uh, what we could call the feminine, you know, it becomes important to look at what those values can contribute to our world today. But, you know, the these are ultimately just words. Um, the, the constructs, the idea of the feminine, the idea of, of womanhood are all constructs, but they are constructs that are also real. So when you are born female, when you are deemed to be born female, then you are going to, in, in all likelihood, receive a cultural education that is centering around the idea of you being feminine. Um, but that is simultaneously also devaluing whatever uh, is imbued in the idea of you being feminine. So, yes, um, sensuous knowledge is, is certainly not about essentializing femininity or, or sensuousness even or anything like that, um, but rather it, it, is, it is refusing to be silent about, you know, the devaluing of these things and also yeah, to just to just look at all of the different elements of of what shapes collective consciousness and knowledge. You're listening to With Reason from New Humanist Magazine and the Rationalist Association. With me, Alice Block, and me, Samira Shackle. And today we're joined by Mina Salami, who's talking about her book Sensuous Knowledge. If you're enjoying this episode please take 20 seconds now to pause it and tweet about it, tagging in at New Humanist, or share a link on Facebook. The more listeners we have, the more episodes we can make. Thanks for your support. So far, we've talked about why Europatriarchal knowledge needs to be called out. And we've heard about how what Minna calls sensuous knowledge, if applied to the economy, for example, could reap all sorts of rewards, nurturing a culture of reciprocity. Coming up, we'll talk about sisterhood, decolonization, and Minna takes a look at a New Humanist article on the African-American thinker W.E.B. Du Bois. But first, back to Minna, describing the biography behind her writing. I was actually born in Finland, um, but moved to Nigeria as a baby, and then to Sweden as a teenager. From Sweden, I moved to New York, and then to London, where I now still am for the most part. And yes, I think that having so many different backgrounds and the identities that come along with such backgrounds, it hasn't always been easy to, to unite these different elements of my, of my unique experience. But ultimately, you know, it certainly now feels like an advantage because I'm able to, to look at issues with multiple lenses. And Minna, you use the term writer's grievance. What do you mean by that? I think you draw on the African-American thinker and activist W.E.B. Du Bois and his ideas about double consciousness. W.E.B. Du Bois 
when he coined double consciousness, what he meant is that you that you other yourself because you're constantly looking at yourself with uh, perceptions that have been formulated by another group of people, and furthermore, they have formulated uh, these perceptions with a contempt and a pity toward you. Um, and so I compare writer's grievance to double consciousness. And basically what, what I mean by writer's grievance is, is this sense that I have when I'm writing in which I am aware of a, of a kind of, uh, almost howling rage <laughs> with, um, the oppressive, uh, dominant stories about women, about people of color and so on. And then a simultaneous frustration that, you know, you can't just write about something mundane and trivial in the way that a, a white male author might be able to. And so that's what I mean by writer's grievance, which is something that I experience to a far greater extent than, you know, than writer's block, for instance, which is what writers are, are allegedly to experience. And and another thing that you talk about is the importance of decolonizing the mind. Um, could you explain that a little bit? Yeah, so we typically think of, of decolonizing the mind as though the prefix de, it, like to decolonize is almost thought of as if we could amputate thought and just remove whatever patterns of thinking are no longer working in our societies but decolonizing the mind doesn't work like that at all. And if anything, that just makes us paranoid and, and almost neurotic because, uh, you know, it's almost like we we start to think that we can just swallow a, a, a decolonization pill and wake up the next day with decolonized minds. And then we start to compete with others and think, oh, is this person more decolonized than I am? And so on and so forth. And rather, decolonizing the mind is something that speaks to coming to, to seeing consciousness as a whole. You know, I, I compare decolonizing the mind to uh, a garden where we might think of it, or today the way we think of it is to like do away with any plants that we find ugly. Um, whereas decolonizing the mind is actually seeing if some kind of hybrid plant grows out of what already exists in the garden. Um, it is planting new seeds that can then flourish. Um, and how do those ideas around decolonization relate to uh, something like removing statues, which we've seen this year in the UK as part of Black Lives Matter protests? Uh, so do you think a physical change like the removing of a, a physical monument like a statue is useful if it's not accompanied by this kind of mental process or an educational one, perhaps? So I think that I certainly see the symbolic value in, in some of the statue removals that took place this year. But yes, I, I think without a change of mindset, I am concerned that it just becomes a symbolic exercise with little lasting effect. Mina, I want to jump forward to this subject of sisterhood uh, that you talk about also. I think you mentioned it's a bit of an unfashionable concept at the moment. I feel that's something instinctively I would agree with too. What What do you mean by that? And why is sisterhood nonetheless important to you? In talking about this, I think you mentioned the feminist theorist Bell Hooks, but you also mentioned a kind of uncomfortable exchange you had with a woman in a, a London bookshop at an event. Yeah, so the first thing to say is that um, I'm, I'm speaking about political sisterhood rather than a, a kind of sisterhood where you know, everybody's holding hands and getting along. That is not the case and uh, doesn't have to be the case at all. Um, so 
you know, we think of feminism as a fight against patriarchy, which it is, but it is also a fight for this type of political sisterhood because, uh, you know, put it this way, if acid rain falls over a forest, it might not kill every tree, but it affects every tree negatively. And patriarchy affects every woman negatively, even if it does so in varying degrees. Um, and so if we're not looking to get away, do away with the acid um, or with patriarchy in this case, then, you know, we're all going to be impacted adversely. And so this this bookshop incident, it was where a woman kind of suggested to you that she thought personally it wasn't best practice, say, to collaborate or cooperate with white feminists and, and you disagreed with her. I did a, a talk at a bookshop in London and, um, and during which I, I mentioned that I thought we should have political sisterhood between women. And afterwards, an audience member said to me that she disagreed and she thought that as black women, we shouldn't collaborate with white women because white women don't have black women's interests at heart. You know, it's hard to, to summarize because this is a very complex conversation between two black women that come from different backgrounds. But, you know, I thought about this a lot. And I mean, I thought about this conversation between her and I. And, and I ultimately disagree because you know, we live, we, we have to figure out ways of, of coexisting, even if we as black women uh, were to do away with racism, we would still as women be severely detrimentally impacted by patriarchy. And just like we need to fight against racism together with black men, we also need to fight against sexism together with white women. Um, Minna, there are vast inequalities within that sisterhood. You write about how black women's contribution to the feminist movement throughout history, in fact, throughout all the different waves, has been underappreciated. Um, there's been little return on investment, is how you put it. Yes. When we look at feminism in waves, so that is like the first wave, second wave, third wave, and so on, um, each of these waves has been largely, if not designed, then, uh, you know, shaped by black feminists from the first wave where you had women like Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who popularized the movement, but was actually very much impacted by black women like Ida B. Wells. And then you have the second wave in the, in the 1960s, which was a direct result of uh, the civil rights movement and, you know, very much borrowed ideas from, from the civil rights movement as well as third world liberation movements. Third wave of feminism was actually coined by Rebecca Walker, a black woman, and shaped by notions such as intersectionality coined by a black woman. And the fourth wave that we're, we're now in is, you know, we have movements like Me Too, which was started by Tarana Burke, a black woman. You have uh, some of the most influential feminist icons like Beyonce and Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. So yes, uh, despite the contributions of black women to feminism for over a century, it is still for some reason seen as a white women's movement predominantly and that's a problem interesting um and you quote audrey lord on white feminist appropriation of black feminist thinking um could you remind us of that audrey lord um i don't want to make it seem like that was her her main argument by any means because 
Audre Lorde's focus was actually on building the kind of political solidarity and sisterhood between women. The thing is that because of Europatriarchal knowledge and the racism that that has created in our world, we have to grapple with that also um, when building political sisterhood between between women. And so, yeah, this was one of the, the things that, that Lord had to, had to raise. You quote a letter that she wrote to Mary Daly, the feminist Mary Daly, saying something like, um, how many white feminists truly read my words or did you merely finger through them for quotations which you thought might valuably support an already conceived idea? I guess reading that quote, Minna, led me to thinking about the risk of uh, black feminism and indeed sensuous knowledge being appropriated or taken up in a piecemeal fashion. Just to finish, how do you think moving forward that sensuous knowledge can be fully appreciated, can be fully acted upon rather than just appropriated, quoted, co-opted? What kind of discussions should we be having? So the whole point in sensuous knowledge is, you know, it's written in a kind of psychoactive way, you could say. So my hope is that it it kind of plants a gestalt in the reader's mind um, of how we can approach knowledge. And if that gestalt is planted successfully, it means that whatever issue a person is looking at, if they apply sensuous knowledge, then they will look at it from multiple angles. They will look at it from a sort of political, but also uh, a more embodied, a more soulful, just different kinds of ways. Um, and so it's not really something that can be appropriated if it is, if it is um, understood, um, because that means that you can't piecemeal lift ideas. I mean, that's Europatriarchal knowledge. That's what that does. With 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 sensuous knowledge, you have to genuinely engage. And so if you are seeking to work with Black women, with women from any part of the world, it's kind of uh, really doing that and not just, you know, using hashtags or uh, posting banners on Instagram or whatever superficial deed that you could compare to what Mary Daly uh, was accused of by, by Audre Lorde, right? So, yes. That's great. Minna Salami, thank you very much for, for joining us. Although I say thank you, but before we go, this is where we just have a quick look at the New Humanist Archive to find something that resonates with our guest's work or ideas, um, or maybe that contradicts and clashes entirely. Um, Minna, you've been reading a recent piece by Lola Okolozi that talks about an exhibition held earlier this year in the UK, in London, of charts and diagrams by the African-American sociologist W.E.B. Du Bois, designed to counter racist thinking at the turn of the century. He gets a few mentions in your book, and I know we spoke about him briefly earlier. Tell us a bit more about him and, and what he means to you. Yeah, I really enjoyed Lola's piece. Um, I thought it brings out Du Bois's character well. Um, and in, in terms of him being somebody who was a, a product of his time. And so he did work that is continues to resonate um, to me and to, to many Black scholars and activists. But he also um, contributed to what I label as Europatriarchal knowledge insofar that he he kind of was a victim of of the same double consciousness that he he so aptly coined and and fought against. Um, and the charts that Du Bois made uh, this was for the 1900 Paris Exposition. Uh, they were really early infographics. They were brightly coloured designs um, that were used to challenge the pseudoscience of racism. So one, for instance, was called the assessed value of household kitchen furniture owned by Georgia Negroes. 
um, which showed that the black population was against the odds growing in economic strength. Um, So I wondered, uh, with such graphics, do you think that Du Bois was drawing attention to the limits of Europatriarchal knowledge or perhaps the harm done by it? This is actually why I meant that he was both protesting and revolting against Europatriarchal knowledge, but also in some ways strengthening it because he was, um, it's almost like Europatriarchal knowledge forced him to try to prove the humanity of black people by uh, showing that they too could, um, could be wealthy and could exist in this system where we rank each other and create hierarchies rather than just because they're human beings. Um, and so he had to refer to, to statistics about black wealth uh, in order to, to prove the humanity of black people. And I guess finally, Minna, that's something I suppose you talk about in your book, Sensuous Knowledge, this idea of the so-called minority group or the oppressed group having to orientate themselves around the oppressor, to speak the language of the oppressor, to develop a kind of protest identity rather than being allowed to simply be. Um, does that idea fit in with what we're talking about here? Absolutely. And that's why I declare that Sensuous Knowledge is a progress book rather than a protest book. Um, You know, when you protest against something, you automatically centre that thing. Um, Whereas by progress, I'm referring to the three meanings of the word progress. So to to move forward, to progress, and to raise consciousness higher, and to ultimately to progress means to continue something that is unfinished. And so, yes, I, I, I think it's a progress book in that sense. Mina Salami there. Alice, that was such a fascinating conversation. What do you think will stick with you from what Mina had to say? Loads, uh, I think, actually. I mean, the book's quite small, but it holds quite a lot of big ideas within it. And I have to say, actually, I think reading it was quite a challenge to my own way of thinking or my own prejudice, really, about ideas of kind of sensuality, eroticism, even these ideas um, that really we do kind of often dismiss intellectually, I suppose. They don't tend to be taken seriously. And talking to Mino got me thinking about why we don't take those seriously and what value might come from doing so. Um, I think I was especially convinced when she gave that example, talking about the economy and the idea that if we were to apply sensuous knowledge to that, we could have an economy that was maybe more about ideas of exchange and reciprocity, rather than um, extraction and competition and so on. Um, I thought that was really interesting. Um, I also liked her answer um, about this quite tricky issue of kind of championing the supposedly feminine without at the same time kind of essentializing woman and womanhood. Um, I thought she gave a really decent defense of that. What else struck you, Samira? Yeah, I agree. There was something quite challenging, I think, about this idea of questioning forms of knowledge production and the the whole kind of way we value knowledge and mm. uh, and so on. I think that was was really, really interesting to hear her elaborate on just kind of talking about, as you say, the the kind of practical ways that this very theoretical discussion could be applied and what that could look like and what that could mean. Mm. And the idea of of different cultures, when she talked about the Yoruba culture and this idea of um, kind of just different conceptions of how we form and hold and value knowledge, uh, I think there's something really interesting like that, that it isn't necessarily just one way, uh, as we often think. 
Mm. And I think also she rather generously, some people might say, uh, reflects on the damage done by Europatriarchal knowledge to men in particular. I think she suggests even that they might be even more harmed by that kind of knowledge system than than even women are at times. I think she says men are socialised to repress and neglect the emotional and embodied side of life. Um, weirdly, when I first read her book, it reminded me very much of a novel, actually, which is James Baldwin's Giovanni's Room. And that's about kind of desire and sexuality and shame. It's an incredibly moving book, another short short but powerful book about the harm done when society just doesn't make space for kind of multiple ways of being and desiring and and knowing and so on. Um, somehow that that's a, a sort of work of fiction that I would somehow pair with with this book, Sensuous Knowledge. I suppose finally, I also was interested in this idea of hers that minority groups are rarely allowed to simply be um, in the way that the most powerful groups in society are, you know, those who set the agenda. And she talks about the risk of kind of orientating yourself around the oppressor or around the person who's kind of constructing you, who's situating you, um, because that can kind of lessen you, I suppose, or force you into being quite one-dimensional, um, which is something that those who have the privilege of being in power don't have to to suffer. I suppose that could be a lesson for for people sort of looking for change and and campaigning for change going into 2021. Yeah, I think that's such an important point. Uh, and that reminded me of an essay that Riz Ahmed wrote uh, for the book, the anthology, The Good Immigrant. And he talked about being typecast and how first he was um, typecast as a terrorist, then he was typecast in movies that were lampooning the idea of terrorism. Yeah. Uh, and then you kind of finally get to a stage where you can just be a guy and just be an actor playing some person who doesn't have anything to do with all these other kind of stereotypes and so on I think there's something yeah I think there's something really valuable in that absolutely the privilege of just being it's an interesting idea yeah absolutely well that's all for now next time we'll be talking to Mariah Fanabeka someone who's also interested in looking askance at the taken for granted she's the co-author of a book called work want work all about work and desire in late capitalism Head to newhumanist.org.uk to read more about that. You'll also find reading lists and transcripts for all of the episodes in this series. With Reason was produced and presented by me, Alice Block, and by Samira Shackle. See you here again soon. Bye.